0: Give you an answer if I can catch one passing through that feels right for you.
1: Anything you wanna know,
0: just ask me.
1: And
0: it costs and you know it's free. free hello and welcome to episode 1958 of effectively wild a baseball podcast from fan presented by our patreon supporters i am ben Lindbergh of the ringer joined by meg riley of fan hello meg so just this week, we talked to Chris Oxpring, the 45-year-old pitcher in the Australian Baseball League for the Sydney Blue Sox, and mentioned that he was the oldest pitcher in the league. No longer. He has been displaced. There is always a bigger fish, and there's a, always an older ABL pitcher. Daesung Koo is back. Remember Dae Sung-Koo? Yeah. How about that? (laughs) Much like Chris Oxpring, Dae Sung-Koo pitched one season in the majors, 2005, this very same season. And much like Chris Oxpring, he has pitched in Korea, where of course he is from, and Japan, and Australia. I think he may have moved to Australia. He's actually a former teammate of Chris Oxpring's because he used to pitch for Sydney in the ABL also when Chris Oxpring was there. And he came out of retirement and pitched a scoreless inning just this week. He is pitching for a team called Geelong Korea, which is in Geelong. It's in Victoria in Australia. And the Geelong Korea team, which was an expansion club a few years ago, is populated almost entirely or entirely by Korean players. And he had been managing, but he came out of retirement and he pitched and he got a couple strikeouts. He is 53 years old, Meg. What? 53. (laughs) What? (laughs) 53 years old. Yeah. <laughs> people may remember Dae-sung Koo, especially Mets fans who knew him yeah. as Mr. Koo because he had a famous uh, incident where after not having batted for close to 20 years, he stood in there against Randy Johnson. And Tim McCarver said it looked like he wasn't even prepared to hit. But then he doubled deep to the outfield off of the big unit. And then he came around to score on a sacrifice bunt, which was just wild that he hurt his shoulder in the process. Process, but you still see that play sometimes. But he's still out there plying his trade. And he said in an article that he'd been working on his body and, and he thought he could throw 130 kilometers per hour, which is uh, about 80, 81. As it turned out, he threw 117, which is more like 72. <laughs> but, but it was fast enough. He got the job done. So... <laughs> Yeah, now Chris Oxpring has to stick around for, I guess, another eight years or so if he wants to reclaim his title of oldest pitcher in that league. Yeah. Technically, I guess ku held that title already. I said that Oxbring was the oldest, and he is this year, and there were some sources that said he was the oldest ever, but ku actually pitched an inning in the 2018 to 2019 season too, a scoreless inning, when he was uh, a mere 48 or 49, I guess, so he's the oldest, and he still got it. I think maybe he has glasses now. He, he just, you know, he's just, he's a lefty at least, so it, yeah. it makes some sense yeah. that, that he's he would do that but i love it I love yeah, it. yeah
1: that's that's remarkable i mean on the on the one hand i will say i would hope after a baseball career you could just like be, be done if you want to be when you're mm-hmm. in your 50s but like if you don't want to be being yeah. able to play still that seems seems great you know yeah it's really nice
0: yeah i love when guys just Keep playing. They hang around even yeah. though they don't have to. And even right. though they're at a lower level than they once were, it, right. it happens less than it used to. I think just because uh, major league players, they make enough money now that right. if they're not in the majors anymore, they can quit playing. But you know, it used to be like when you had to get a second job or you had to have a whole career after your right. baseball career, then sometimes players would kind of kick around in the minors for a while after they lost their major league jobs. So that doesn't happen so much anymore but sometimes you see this type of player. Obviously, Koo and Oxpring and, and their ilk were not long for the majors, and right. so they didn't get to make a ton of money while they were there. Right. But still, like, clearly you playing for love of the game at this point, which yeah. is it's really nice.
1: I think it's just, you know, we struggle to know what to, to do with ourselves when we've been doing one thing for a really long time. Right,
0: know? yeah. Like,
1: how do you orient your life around this, like, vast expanse of available unclaimed time it's hard you know yeah
0: Mm -hmm. And it can be, I guess, sort of sad at times if someone can't make that transition right? right? and and their playing career is taken away from them and they just don't know what to do with themselves and they don't really find a niche. But if you can keep playing (laughs) and keep making a living around the world, especially if if it's your home or your adopted country and you get to have your family with you and everything and you just get to come out of retirement and school (laughs) players who are 20 or 30 years Younger than you, from time to time. It sounds like the dream. I love it.
1: Yeah, I think that yeah. I think that that would be pretty great.
0: Mm-hmm. Another follow-up here. We gotta close the book, probably, hopefully, maybe on Brandon Belt and his famous. <laughs> chicken fingers Got <laughs> a few updates on <laughs> this developing story <laughs> oh <laughs> but, boy
1: friday but, show
0: yeah we're not the only ones who have been semi-obsessed with brandon no. belt's chicken fingers so vindicated tenders that is not fingers but he has uh, been asked about this yeah. and he actually he did an interview on knbr the san francisco station the other day on the papa and lund show and he actually they were talking about how he's a picky eater, but he brought up the tenders himself. So I will play a quick clip here. So a big deal up there, I guess, uh, this offseason, they they found an interview I did where I said the chicken strips were so great over there and, at the Ritz. Yeah, and, I heard that. Uh, I don't really remember that, to be <laughs> honest with you, but I, I, I ended up getting them again, and I, I, I remember why I said that. They were pretty awesome. So any place that's got chicken strips, I'm, it's, it's, good. it's good enough to me. So he was a, a doubter. He didn't immediately recall how great the tenders were when that quote of his was dug up, but then he went back for a second helping and confirmed that they were, in fact, incredible. However, when we were informed of this clip by listener Michael, I had a, a pedantic Objection! Yeah, how how can you not be pedantic about chicken? I I wondered whether chicken strips are the same as chicken tenders because in his initial quote, Belt had called them tenders, but here on the radio he called them strips. Right, and according to some sources and some serious research I did, those do seem to be different. Things there are different things, preparations, even if they're sometimes used interchangeably. And I got confirmation of that. And I've got another clip here because the Tim and Friends show on Sportsnet so, this is a a show that is recorded in Toronto, I believe. And they actually brought on the executive chef from the Toronto Ritz Carlton the other day to serve them. (laughs) The chicken tendies in person and confirmed that they really were as great as advertised. Did they call and them tendies? <laughs> no, I don't think they did call them tendies. I, again, tendies. I'm just editorializing here. Sure, but, yeah. But they actually asked because maybe someone had brought this point up to them before while they had the chef in the studio. They actually confirmed that tenders are are different from yes. nuggets or strips or other preparations so here's a, a quick clip the second voice you will hear is the executive chef of the ritz confirming as much so going P- first so pj on. wrote in hold on and i want to get the executive chef hurry all right nuggets and strips are most often the same stuff ground up frozen breaded chicken the tender is a part of the chicken breast an unprocessed piece of meat they're not the same. Is that a good explanation yes. of what the difference between a nugget and a tender is? Correct. Okay. Yeah, these are tenders. These are tenders. Yeah, they're a whole pieces of the chicken. So there you have it. So they yeah. are in fact tenders and they are in fact great. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <sighs> I mean, I just uh <laughs> it would be such a weird thing to be a baseball player that's an obvious statement allow me to say more you know it's like you make this offhand remark you probably don't i mean clearly think another moment about it until it is presented to you as like an organizing fact of your psychology and one of the bigger (laughs) decisions of your professional life and two weirdos talk about it on their friday show and (laughs) the chef gets to go and like be on the radio and <laughs> the reputation of a hotel kitchen is on the line.
0: Yep. It's
1: such a weird, it's a weird <laughs> life that they live, you know? It's a really Arguably weird one. Arguably
0: blown out of proportion. The impact We've never that, done that before, the, very the, first time. That the, the tenders have played in his decision making and his happiness about being in Toronto. But it's a source of some fascination, clearly, not just for us.
1: I mean, at least the at least when he had them again, he was like, "Yeah, you know, now yeah. that I've had them again, I realize why I said that. I remember right. them to be good." So I was
0: right the first time, yeah.
1: You know, at least he didn't come back and say, "You know, those are kind of yeah. overrated." Because sometimes you think you think you know a thing, you know, yeah, and yeah, you, you have it on vacation somewhere, maybe, and then you go back and you search for it and you find it again, mm-hmm. and then it kind of underwhelms because. it you know, wasn't really, it wasn't really about the tenders, Ben. It was right. about the great vacation you had. And that's yeah. really what you're tasting in your memory <laughs> is the great vacation. But no, exactly. he had them again and, and deemed them good. So I'm happy. I'm mostly happy for the chef at the Ritz-Carlton because yeah. he probably had a really stressful morning. He's not used to having to talk to weirdo sports media folks.
0: Right, I guess. I count the ourselves only. Ourselves among that, <laughs> yes, oh, absolutely, yeah. present company included. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it could have been uh, the chef was having an off day or a yeah. great day that day, or the ingredients right. were special. You never yeah. know. So uh, it's uh, you nice. Know,
1: something got got like tipped, funnily mm-hmm. in the in the spice blend. Yeah, and, and you wouldn't necessarily know. And then what? then yeah, what no, ben
0: but you can count on these tenders day in day out the only <sighs> problem as noted is that you can only acquire them if you are staying at the ritz now right. maybe they'll they'll change that to capitalize on this wave of publicity right perhaps. But as of now, as one of our listeners confirmed, you have to be staying at the Ritz or at least have a room. If you really, really want the tenders, you could presumably just uh, have a room and pay for the room and the tenders. But I don't know that that would be worth it. They might not be that good. Anyway, we'll let you know if anything else comes of this. Yeah. Another update, I have to pass along some sobering results of a reddit poll this week about people's (sighs) preferred term for the extra inning runner And I can say this now because voting has closed a few hours before we are recording here on Friday. So (laughs) You have to
1: maintain the integrity of the Reddit voting process. You don't want to have undue influence.
0: Yeah, I don't want to stuff the ballot box here. I voted one time, but I I did not (laughs) (laughs) attempt to exert any influence to sway the results of the poll. And clearly, I don't have that much influence or the results of the poll would have been different because this is dismaying. So Mm. there are five options here for the responses automatic runner which is sort of the official technical term ghost runner which as we have talked about ad nauseum is an absolute abomination and a crime against the language because that is not what the extra inning runner is that is an entirely different type of runner as even dictionary.com has acknowledged under pressure from me then of course there's zombie runner our Mm -hmm. preferred term manfred man and other Now, I I hate to report that Zombie Runner finished second to last, barely ahead of Other. We could barely beat Other. Yeah. Now, the good news, the silver lining is that Ghost Runner did not win. So it goes Manfred Mann, Ghost Runner fairly close behind Manfred Mann, then a big drop to Automatic Runner, Then a small drop to Zombie Runner, which got only 459 votes out of almost 6,000 and then other after that so uh, this has thrown me this has shaken me because i thought we were making more progress than this especially on the baseball subreddit which i i think of as a very effectively wild friendly place yeah we we get shouted out there i mean our people are there a lot of our people Yeah, i I don't know whether the results would be even worse if you were to do this offline with kind of Casual, you know, real life baseball fans, not extremely online ones like us, but <laughs> I'd imagine that it might be even worse in, in that group. So the fact that Zombie Runner did this poorly in this poll, it has really upset me. And, you know, there are people who uh, have noted that we would be upset about this in the comment thread. The uh, people noted that the sub needs to listen to more effectively wild. Someone posted Ben Lindbergh in shambles, which is true. <laughs> I am, I was in shambles. So this is this is tough. This is a real wake-up call for me. The the market penetration of zombie runner is so low. And look, I, I favor Manfred Mann over Ghost Runner. Because at least it's not the wrong term. It's not a pre-existing term that is something different from the zombie runner. But look, I, if people like that, I mean, when I heard Manfred Mann for the first time, I, I chuckled. I thought, okay, that's clever. You know, I I don't dislike Manfred Mann. My objections to Manfred Mann are along the lines of: first of all, I'm not sure that everyone would get the reference. Although the right. fact that Manfred Mann is so popular in this poll suggests that maybe they do. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. I mean I, I in my music collection I I have a whole lot of Manfred Mann. I have like not just Manfred Mann the band but but multiple other bands that Manfred Mann was in that Manfred Mann lent his name to. So, I mean, I'm probably in one of the top percentiles of Manfred Mann awareness. And I guess (laughs) baseball, you know, has an older audience that would maybe be more savvy about Manfred Mann. But still, I'm not sure, like, beyond blinded by the light, like, how many, you know, Manfred Mann fans there are out there these days. So, So there's that. And then there's also the fact that, Manfred didn't invent the extra inning right. runner, right? He he implemented it in the right. majors, a crime for which he should be punished in perpetuity. And you could say that he should be saddled with this, like it yeah. should be his legacy, like we should hang this around his head, Manfred Mann. It's like shaming him. Mm. But I, I wonder, because in a way, is it is it a tribute? Is it honoring him? Like, would Manfred right. be... Be flattered to have this Named after I probably I think he would Probably even even if that's not the intent So I don't know that I want this Burnishing his legacy especially Because (laughs) he didn't invent This it existed for for decades At at other levels
1: yeah I (laughs) I think that When when evaluating Whether a term is understood To be appropriately Pejorative It is useful to understand How the person who references would understand it, and I think you're right that Rob Manfred would look at this and go to quote myself, no notes. You know, yeah. he um, he quite likes this right. this change. So I think that unless we shift it to Manfred, man parentheses derogatory, mm-hmm. I think we're not conveying <laughs> the great sense of betrayal. You know, yeah. more than anything that we experience when watching this, and so. Given that it does not communicate that feeling, I think that zombie runner remains remains good as uh, and the best option, really, right. because it is clarifying it does not replicate a term that has a prior long standing definition it I think will stand the test of time like if we if we go with Manfred man even not caring that he won't know that we are saying "How dare you right that the tone is. Mm-hmm rob baby that sucks you know yeah in 28 years people aren't gonna know and people yeah, will be like, right. why did i call Manfred man and he won't be the commissioner by then i would imagine and um <laughs> who knows if we'll be doing this podcast because <laughs> we'll be old enough to play baseball in australia but yeah. you know like uh i think you want to keep zombie run it's just such a perfect it's so perfect it's so perfect it's just like a it's so tidy you know yeah
0: yeah it's yeah, tidy. Is, someone commented, Zombie Runner simply makes no sense, but people around here like to use it because that's what effectively Wild calls it. <laughs> we call it that because it makes perfect sense. We
1: call it that because it makes good sense. Although I love this idea that we are like the architects of a shadowy cabal <laughs> of baseball nerds who can yeah. exert our influence. Well, if we could not do nearly that. nearly enough
0: influence, clearly. Yeah, We're be doing better yeah. in the poll here. <laughs> so, yeah, I just I don't see it. I mean, it's perfect. Like everyone knows what a zombie is. Except people on The Walking Dead show Who never call them zombies for some reason But what do they
1: call them on Walking Dead again?
0: Uh, well, walkers, walkers <laughs> but, right? But also right. like a, a million other names yeah, Everything except zombie
1: Well sure, when you live in a post-apocalyptic Hellscape, you gotta come up with sure. some slang Because the <laughs> slang you had, it doesn't Seem to meet the moment
0: yeah. But yeah. again, it's it's perfect. Everyone understands the reference and mm. the, the runner was, was out. They were dead. Then they were reanimated. Right. They were put back on base. And it yeah. also, it's, it conveys the, the derogatory tone, derogatory. I think. Derogatory, yeah. There's something unnatural and unholy about right. this. The, this runner was brought back from the dead and, right. and just put back to shamble on second base and eat our brains as baseball fans. It's perfect on every level. So I just, I don't understand the objection.
1: Brains. Wasn't there a, <laughs> a movie one time about um, a good zombie and he fell in love with a non-zombie? Wasn't that uh, yeah? Nick Holt guy in that Nicholas Holt, Nick Holt. Right.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I just I don't know what uh, what problem people have with this, but we just we got to keep doing the work. I guess right. we just got to keep putting the message out there and hope that it resonates at some point or that they do away with the rule. and We don't have to call it that. But I think <laughs> that we're going
1: to have to keep fighting the fight, yes, button, because the odds that they so. get rid of the rule, I seem quite low to me.
0: They do. Yeah. Warm Bodies, by the way, was the oh, name of that Warm movie. Warm Bodies. Yeah.
1: I didn't do The Walking Dead. Like, I tried it because everyone was like, back when it premiered, you know, 20 million years ago, they're like, mm-hmm. this show's great. And then I was like, I think the quality to gross-out ratio is wrong for me. And if you <laughs> uh-huh. liked like that's fine. But it, it wasn't quite right for me. And then I was shocked to learn, I think, isn't that show still on or, like, just concluded?
0: It just went off the air. And wow. there are several spin-offs and, and sequels and prequels and such that are still running, which I it's would based know on because a comic book, right? Yes, the All comic, right. the the comic, yeah. the graphic novel series is completed, but the uh, TV franchise shambles on, and and I somehow shamble along with it because I did not make that wise decision that you did to check out at some point, which almost everyone did at yeah. some point, and I, I stuck it out to the bitter end, but yeah. I got some, some content out of it for the Ringer at least, so that oh, was something well, if you, anyway. If
1: you if you did it for content, it's like uh it went from being a figurative. Zombie to being a literal zombie, right? Yes, right, exactly. Persisting
0: forever. Well, sorry to report that news, but I I had to like we have to rile up the base here. We have to tell them like our work here is not done. No, there are there, we have to proselytize. There are many out there who are not convinced. I I look at Manfred Mann people as like fellow travelers, I guess. Yeah. you know, like their hearts are in the right place. I yeah, think. Yeah, they're rejecting
1: you know? Ghost Runner. That's, yes, that's the you important know, thing. That's the yeah. first step. <laughs>
0: that's the.
1: F- <laughs> First step to getting to the promised land is admitting that there's a problem with the existing social order. We
0: can form some kind of coalition here, the the zombie runner people and the Manfred Man people. Oh, yeah. We're we're on the right side of history, I think. But there's still a a divide between us, a a smaller but significant divide. Politics is so complicated. (laughs) And we have a, a nomination, today's nomination, for a way in which baseball is different and and weird and strange and unusual. And thanks to Raymond Chen, the primary keeper of the Effectively Wild wiki, for putting together a page on the wiki to keep track of all of these different submissions for ways that baseball is different. So today's comes from listener Jonathan now we talked about one way that the strike zone sets the sport apart we believe in that it is adaptive to the dimensions of the hitter right which is odd as we Weird. noted in the NBA if you're a, a shorter player you don't get to shoot at a shorter hoop right, right. like you you have to just Conform and make do with the dimensions They're just fixed dimensions and everyone Has to play with them Whereas in baseball, the strike zone Which is quite important, conforms To the height of the hitter It's odd For such a a central feature of the sport To vary like that To be player specific Jonathan has another strike zone nomination So he said, isn't the weirdest thing about baseball The strike zone, it isn't even real And yet, most things Quantitatively speaking that happen during a game Depend upon the subjective determination Of an umpire As to whether or not the ball was in or out Of the invisible box That's pretty weird Mm. So the fact that a central feature of the sport is essentially invisible is sort of implied, I think that is odd. Now, if you were playing tennis or, or volleyball or table tennis or whatever, and the, the net was imaginary and you all just had to be like, was that over right. that or not? Eh, I don't know. That would be kind of weird. Like there's actually a physical thing there that tells you whether it was high enough or not. Right. And the same for, you know, baskets or or goals or whatever, like they're fixed dimensions. Right. Everything is, is corporeal and tangible. And you can see whether it was in or out. Now I responded to to Jonathan with one possible comp here. I said I guess it's not that different from the first down line. Or the line to gain, I guess, is the technical term in football. Because oh, I love it when Ben does a football. <laughs> yeah, I know it's rare for me, but but as I said, that's also an invisible target that players either are aiming for or trying to protect, and then the officials just sort of eyeball it and judge whether the ball crossed the implied plane. And the superimposed yellow line, the first down line on a football broadcast on TV, is sort of like the superimposed K-Zone on baseball broadcast because it's not physically there. So you need the broadcast to add something so you could see what everyone is aiming for. And then the chain pole on the sidelines is sort of like home plate, I think, in that it kind of marks the borders, but then you have to extrapolate from there, really, to see, okay, so was that, did that cross there, the plate's down there, the ball was up there, and you sort of have to do the the same thing with the ball to determine whether something was a a first down. It's very odd. I mean, I don't know if this is like, do do football people want to preserve the human element of the chain gang? Oh, it's
1: really very silly.
0: It's very silly, especially because they have... Chips in the ball now, right? That that tracks the ball's position. I
1: believe that that is correct.
0: So, in theory, you could use that maybe, and, and I guess it's like the center of the ball. But you could figure out maybe where the tip of the ball was when the ball came to rest, because otherwise, it's just you know you're sort of <laughs> just ballparking it, really. So, I think that is a a fairly close comp. So, I don't know if this is unique, so but it is. It's weird.
1: It's close. I would maybe say that the that home plate is maybe less akin to the chains and more akin to the field markers mm. right like you're right that the the line that we see on TV is superimposed by the broadcast, so like it's on the field. Right. But yeah. it is in reference to...
0: There's a there's like a pole, right? Like a chain pole that's well, on sure, the sidelines. Well, sure, but lines. you're also
1: using like the markers on the field, like you're using the yardage markers yes. on the ground, right, that they paint True. on. Right. So that maybe feels like a slightly closer comp to me than the chain or maybe they work in tandem, right? They're both providing a referent to something that moves and is sort of situationally determined. Mm-hmm. Right. Like what your line to gain is is going to depend on a lot of yeah. stuff related to the drive. Although, you know, how much yardage you need is like set in the rules. So yeah, that's I don't know. I think that those those might be sort of cousins. You know, they're yeah. not exactly the same, but they're yeah. they're kind of they're kind of cousins. And like in basketball, don't you have, like you can't do goaltending and don't you have the space above True. The... Yeah. Yeah. And that's so a good like one. That's sort of kind of the same too, right? It's less impactful, right? Like that isn't, it's not like every offensive possession in, in basketball, you see the players like, oh yeah, they're goaltending. They're gold like it's not <laughs> yeah. like that rule comes to bear Every possession is brought to bear is what I'm trying to say, every Mm -hmm. possession. But it's sort of in that same category of like you have a physical referent for a thing, but the referent is sort of pointing to space, empty Mm -hmm. amorphous space. And then you have to triangulate between the physical referent and the space.
0: Yeah. Is that similar to offsides maybe where in sort of- yeah, or wherever there's offsides, like where where.
1: Ben, you can ask me to know about soccer. I'm
0: <laughs> not I gonna do ask know you about to know. So-
1: I know. I think I understand offsides now. Actually, after the yeah, World Cup, I but I that's... feel more confident <laughs> about offsides in soccer than I do than in hockey. hockey. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: but, but but that's like there's a there's a physical object. Like right. there's a person. You know, right. there's a body, a and then. There's
1: the <laughs> Puck, right? Isn't right, and, in reference and then to the, puck in hockey.
0: the the ref has to decide whether we this was past really that smart. or whatever. Yeah, and it's all it's very subjective. I mean, there are a lot of subjective decisions right. that umpires, that refs make, officials in in almost every sport. I would think so. The subjectivity is not that unusual. I guess what's unusual is that there's just kind of an invisible line, but maybe there are often invisible lines. Is the line of scrimmage invisible? <laughs> I guess. I mean. That's where the ball is, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, it's
1: invisible in that it's not marked on the field, but like, yeah. it's knowable, right? It's, yeah, it's <laughs> unlike the strike zone, which can feel more amorphous because you have like the rule book definition of the zone and then you have the zone that gets called, and those are not perfectly lined up with one another. So, I think right. that there's greater. So, in this respect, in this respect, baseball remains sort of singular in that it is less reliably knowable, right, mm-hmm. than it is in football. And, you know, we have all experienced, you included, huge football fan, that you are <laughs> watching a game and being like, that measurement was wrong or like that spot was bad. But in theory, that is a, that is a, a pretty knowable thing within the confines of the game now it can be in baseball too but that's just not how the zone is always called so
0: mm-hmm. right cat's trying no. to
1: hawk up a air ball right now <laughs> <laughs> you <Yeah>. okay <laughs> i don't know if you can hear that she seems yeah. fine it's always great <laughs> anyway. when, when
0: one of your cats uh, guests on the show yeah
1: yeah every now and again
0: Mm -hmm. Sometimes my my dog, maybe my baby, who knows? Just all sorts of of creatures, small, cute creatures just appearing unscheduled on the podcast. Yeah,
1: to to throw up.
0: (laughs) I I guess if we get RoboZone or at least partial RoboZone, then that obviously that takes some of the subjectivity out of it, though not the invisibility. Still, it's sort of implied and and you kind of have to just – divined where it is based on right. your own sense of the strike zone and and you're seeing many pitches right. so it's still sort of unusual there's something there we can we can add it to the list yeah thanks jonathan and uh, and people write in to respond to any one of these that we talk about which is good that's uh, the point but we talked about the multiple surfaces on the field the grass and the dirt and how you can go from one to the other or even beyond both at the same time and some people point Out, Dave said that in bowling, that uh, also uh, there's a raised platform in baseball we talked about, right, that the mound, it's odd to have multiple levels. And Dave said in bowling, thinking of non-planar playing surfaces, bowling alleys and crown green bowls are crowned intentionally to add complexity to the games. And John also wrote in to say, well, I'm not sure this technically counts in bowling. Oftentimes the person bowling will step onto a six-inch raised surface to bowl while his team and the opposition is waiting. This struck me as a, a parallel to baseball in that the remainder of the players are waiting their turn at offense as only one can attempt to score points at a time. And also that the person throwing the ball is on an elevated surface. I guess we didn't explicitly say this, but but maybe just the, I don't know if this counts as one, but sort of the, the one-on-one nature of baseball is weird for a team sport. Obviously, it's it's par for the course for an individual sport. You, you're just facing one person at a time. But in baseball, I guess it's not so much that as it's sort of the discrete plays, right. which... We talked about baseball is uh, much more suited to conducive to in-depth analysis. And one of the reasons for that is that it's separated into these discrete plays with stoppages. So it's not really one-on-one in that, yeah, you have the pitcher versus the batter, but there's also the catcher and the umpire and other parties involved in the play. But there are sort of uh, many more stops and and starts and, and discrete playing and not playing bits than there are in most sports where there's more continuous motion and more of the entire team matchup versus the entire team. So maybe that goes hand in hand with the ease of analysis. Yeah. It's a little unusual. Again, not unique, but still. And uh, Alana wrote in Patreon supporter to say, does the balance beam in gymnastics count as an elevated terrain Mm. in a team sport? Which, as we were talking about that, I was thinking about gymnastics. I was thinking I was about
1: not. That's a great
0: point. <laughs> yeah, I had the pommel horse in my head for some sure. reason, but but we're balance like, uh, beam. The vault. Yeah, beam is right. Yeah, the beam like you're on the beam for most of your routine, but you still have to mount and dismount, right? And and that's part of it. So
1: famously, one of the harder parts of it, seeming right.
0: Now we were talking about team sports. Technically, gymnastics is a team sport, but it's a team sport. In the sense that all the scores of the people on the team are factored in, but individuals compete individually, right? So I don't—it's not quite a team sport in the same sense as baseball is, where you have multiple people playing at the same time. And I guess bowling is—is is kind of. The same is gymnastics and that maybe you have a bowling team, but but each of you is kind of going in sequence, right? So it's a, it's a team sport technically, but it's sort of a different type of team sport, I yeah. suppose. And And also Craig wrote in to say professional football fields are generally crowned also such that the middle of the field is a foot or two higher than the sidelines. This allows water runoff rather than pooling, but also, especially at the college level, teams will manipulate the level and slope of the crown depending on their desired offensive style. Running teams generally favor higher crowns. Quarterbacks who are used to a more flat crown field can have a lot of trouble adjusting to a higher crown. Constructing the crown starts well before the grass is laid, so it's not something that teams can manipulate from week to week, but someday, possibly— But it is one of my arguments against the all football fields are the same. All baseball stadiums are different because most football fields actually are different in terms of the slope of the crown. Baseball fields are somewhat sloped too for for runoff or for similar reasons to favor a certain type of offense or defense. So that sort of thing happens. The length of the grass or the slope of the lines uh, to encourage or, or suppress bunting. That sort of thing has happened in the past. So that's a good point too. And And lastly, friend of the show of the ringer Zach Cram, he wrote in to to tell me about a sport that I was not aware of. It's a Japanese sport called Boteoshi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that completely correctly. Pronunciations varied from Botaoshi to Boteoshi on videos I watched, but this is a, it's like a capture the flag type game mm-hmm. that's uh, traditionally played by cadets at the National Defense Academy of Japan on its anniversary. And you have two giant teams with uh, like 150 people total vying for control of the opposition's poll. Yes, I said poll. And you have 75 attackers and 75 defenders. And there's a, a poll that and the when the defending team's pole is uh, brought lower than 30 degrees to the horizontal it starts out perpendicular then they lose So the match is like two minutes long. And if your pole gets tilted to a 30 degree angle, then it's all over. So (laughs) you have people like climbing on the pole and other people who are sort of at the base and people are climbing on them to try to tilt the pole and it can get very violent. So this is maybe more obscure to American audiences, but there is a, a verticality to that too. I
1: wonder if domed football stadiums are crowned.
0: Oh, I don't know.
1: Like, do they, do they need to be? You're not worried about runoff, right? And they're an artificial surface most of the time. Anyway, yeah, yeah. lots of, mm-hmm. you know, the sports, It's they're a land of contrast, Ben. Yes, you they know? are.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the whole point of this segment. So keep them coming. And- I wanted to just shout out some research I saw. Tom Tango has been blogging up a storm. Tom Tango of MLB.com, who's always working on StatCast stuff at Baseball Savant. And he also is one of the co-authors of the book, and he has a site. TangoTiger.com, where he posts research and he's been busy over there lately. And this one thing he did really threw me for a loop because Tango saw a video where Robbie Ray was talking to Rob Friedman, the pitching ninja, and Robbie Ray said that he holds the ball with the signature side away from the batter. Mm. The idea being that he wants the batter to see the white or the light side of the ball, and keep the signature out of sight because he thought that allowing the batter to see the markings might benefit the batter so he just wants it to be a a blank slate basically that the batter is seeing and so he will hold the ball differently depending on on who he's facing so that they will see the blank part the white part instead of the signature side and this is something that in the past I would have said, oh, that's a really interesting idea. I wonder if there's some kind of competitive advantage here, whether pitchers are really deriving an advantage from doing this and others are not. And they should be. And they're just uh, giving away an edge here. And Tenko actually answered this question or, or was able to really look into this question in an in-depth way. And first of all, he found that it's true that Robbie Ray does this because StatCast can track the point on the ball that it spins around. So you can see (laughs) the orientation of the ball. And he found that Robbie Ray, who's a lefty, when he throws to a righty, he does keep the signature in the dark side, as Tenko called it. Of his 1,010 pitches to right-handed hitters, 96% spun with the signature in the dark side of the ball invisible to the batter now because of that you can't really tell whether it's benefiting robbie ray or not because he's doing that all the time right. if he were to do it sometimes and not at other times then maybe we could see whether there's an advantage but give us Tango, a control group exactly right but there are some natural control groups in that there are pitchers who don't right. vary this yeah. they they don't care they just uh, whoever is hitting they will hold the ball the same way so he found 50 pitchers among lefties who seem to just have the the signature, the Rob Manfred, just uh, randomly positioned. So Carlos Radon, for example, threw 751 pitches with the signature hidden and 673 with the signature in the light side of the ball. So it, it's just sort of uh, randomly varied, seemingly. And he found other pitchers like that. With Radon, he pitched much better when the signature was obscured which is the point that robbie ray was was saying and that's also true for the next pitcher with the most number of pitches thrown julio rias and tango said for all six pitchers who threw at least 800 pitches split about evenly between dark side and light side each of them performed better in the dark side so it sounds like wow robbie ray is onto something here there's a a hidden advantage then again, Tango writes the next six highest thrown pitchers after that did better in the light side going directly against Robbie Ray's thesis. He said the overall average of these 50 pitchers does slightly favor keeping the signature in the dark side, but the median is on the light side. So basically, we're back to square one. He noted that there are 14 lefties who throw with the signature predominantly visible. So there's no good reason to do that, maybe, but it might be a superstition or comfort thing. But there's not enough evidence to suggest, really, that they should be doing something differently. And and he looked at righties against lefties, too. And so, you know, Garrett Cole, for instance, appears to have no preference. And when the signature is on the dark side, Garrett Cole does better. But Christian Javier is the opposite. He does better when the signature is visible. And on and on it goes. So it doesn't look like there's a very clear pattern here. And it could, of course, be true for individual pitchers or for Robbie Ray specifically. It doesn't seem to be true across the board. But whether it's true or not, it amazes me that we can kind of answer this question. Yeah. (laughs) Because until very recently, this would have been firmly in the realm of science fiction, like to figure out... Whether the signature was visible to the batter on the way to the plate in the very brief time when that ball is spinning and going 90 something miles per hour, like that would have been inconceivable that that could have happened. It's just like the fact that you could kind of casually look into this and and Tango has access to data that we don't in the public. But that this data even exists, uh, that anyone can determine an answer to this kind of question, just it boggles my mind, even as yeah. someone who's uh, super into the technology and the, the data of baseball and the stats and everything. Every now and then, there's something that just kind of rocks me back on my heels yeah. and, and makes me feel spoiled or just amazed at at the progress that has been made in being able to quantify things or or track things and be able to answer questions like this. and. I don't know whether it's good or bad. Like, (laughs) Generally, I like being able to answer questions and determine the truth of things. On the other hand, it would have been kind of fun not to know the answer to this and just be like, oh, I wonder if Robbie Ray's onto something here. This is really fascinating. (laughs) Now we can kind of investigate and see, well, at least across the board, it doesn't seem like there's that much to it. but. I don't know. It's just like within our lifetimes, even within our times covering the sport, there's just been such leaps and bounds in being able to look into things like this that you kind of wonder, where does it end? How close are we to where it ends? Are we better off this way? And and also, it's just kind of like, wow, we can actually answer that question. That's incredible.
1: But what is the preferred logo orientation if you want to get jordan alvarez out
0: yeah well I, there probably isn't one i would imagine well that then what matter. good are these
1: answers at all ben <laughs> yeah what good are they
0: yeah i don't think there's one weird trick to get jordan alvarez out necessarily but, but that's the thing. Like I, I would have entertained the idea that this was one weird trick, that like doing this would be some significant advantage. And again, it could be on an individual level, but it seems like many pitchers uh, thrive not paying any attention to this whatsoever. But still, the, the precision is available to be able to to see how the ball is oriented on its way to the plate. I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm coming off like a country bumpkin here, but I'm just like, wow, I'm just like slack-jawed yeah. <laughs> about the fact that it's possible to investigate these things now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. It's a pretty remarkable thing.
0: Yeah, and, and for some people it's probably TMI, right, and right. It's like yeah. I don't I don't want to break my brain thinking about things like this right it's just it's too complex it's it's too nitty-gritty the minutiae I just I don't want to have this on my mind I'm, I'm overthinking it I'm overloaded with information here but it's there if you want it you don't have to have it so it's just I don't know I, I'm just marveling at this even as someone who is uh, pretty plugged into the latest baseball advances and uh, tenkel also he did a little study that surprised me and surprised him which is that he was under the impression as is bill james who has written about this too that ERA on a career level or at least once you get past a, a certain point ERA tells you more about a pitcher than FIP does like we've talked about how FIP is more predictive of future ERA in a single season right and and we've talked about how I think at least that FIP isn't just a predictive stat, it's actually also a retrospective stat that tells you how that player performed as an individual, separated from some team factors and and also sort of alighting some things that might actually matter at times. But but still, I think it sort of drills down on how that pitcher did as an individual, which is why it's more predictive of future results because it's uh, more aligned with the true talent of the player performing there. Anyway, the idea is that ERA would be more telling eventually because FIP suggests that no one has any control whatsoever over batted balls and the ability to prevent them from becoming hits, right? It just uh, takes that out of the equation entirely. So if you're able to induce soft contact, for instance, then maybe that's a skill that FIP doesn't capture, that ERA, given a significant enough sample size, would be. And it's not just that, it's like your ability to hold runners well or not well or pick runners off or field the position yourself or throw wild pitches or, again, get weak contact and ground balls and maybe pitch situationally if you have some ability to do that. And so Bill James and Tango, they both assumed that if you look at a, a big enough sample, that at some point ERA would be more predictive of future ERA than FIP is. And it turns out, according to Tenko's research, at least for the period that he looked at, 1998 to 2021, that that never actually happens, that ERA never outperforms FIP in its ability to predict future FIP that that FIP is always more predictive and, and more telling in that sense than ERA is, which surprised him and surprised me. And he did the same thing with BABIP and it's uh, more or less the same deal. Like just tossing the BABIP out with the bathwater. Like yeah. it, <laughs> there are maybe certain times when, when that could cost you insight and information and discount what a, a player is actually doing. But on the whole, it certainly seems like Not even factoring that in just uh, tells you more about the player's future performance, at least, than factoring it in, which is odd.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah. All right.
0: So we do have some emails uh, we can do here and uh, maybe a little stat blast at the end and a pass blast as always. But we'll see how many emails we can get through here. I guess I will start with a a pedantic question. How can you not be pedantic about baseball questions? This is from Jamie in Richfield, Minnesota, Patreon supporter, who says, I've been stewing over this a while and have finally decided I needed to unburden myself. You've come to the right place. Back in episode 1857, you rightfully mocked the quote-unquote home run robbery by Aaron Judge of Shohei Otani. Judge, in that instance, did not take away a home run. But more importantly... Jamie suggests, judge did not commit robbery. Now, we have talked about the idea that we look at these things, these uh, robbing hits, taking away hits, because we tend to view the sport from the batter's perspective for various reasons. But Jamie's suggesting that robbery is just the wrong term here. He quotes from the New York Penal Code that defines robbery and says that robbery is forcible stealing. A person forcibly steals property and commits robbery when, in the course of committing a larceny, he uses or threatens the immediate use of physical force upon another person for the purpose of preventing or overcoming resistance to the taking of the property or to the retention thereof immediately after the taking, or compelling the owner of such property or another person to deliver up the property or to engage in other conduct which aids in the commission of the larceny. So... Jamie suggests, if Aaron Judge were guilty of what he was alleged to have done, he would have been committing larceny, not robbery. Can we please, please stop calling the taking away of home runs robbery? He stole a home run. Okay, he took something that belonged to someone else. Stealing something is committing larceny. The definition of larceny. Is a person steals property and commits larceny when, with intent to deprive another of property or to appropriate the same to himself or to a third person, he wrongfully takes, obtains, or withholds such property from an owner thereof. And Jamie says, "Woo! this was cathartic. Who knew pedantry could be so liberating? Thank you for letting me vent. So he's saying that even if they're stealing something, even if they're depriving the person of something, they're not doing it forcibly. They're not using physical force or threatening physical force. There's no violence being done here. It's just larceny, not robbery. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean he's he's right. I think yeah, he's right. Sure. Yeah.
1: yeah, that that is that is technically true, which is the first bar that we ask these to clear.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: So you know. <laughs> So there's that. Mm-hmm. I think that we can attribute the preference for robbery over larceny in this to be one of sound and also mouthfeel.
0: Right. There's because a, home run robbery is satisfying to, that. to say. Right.
1: And home run larceny sounds clunky.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And most people... Don't know the difference, you know? They don't know the difference between robbery and larceny because they are neither regularly committing nor being subject to either of them. Right. So... Mm, you know i mean and also when it comes to Aaron judge if one is ever going to make an argument for robbery on technical terms isn't he an imposing figure isn't (laughs) he intimidating
0: an implied threat just right by his very being in person yeah (laughs)
1: like the wall the outfield wall in yankee stadium is like enough i submit so Mm
0: -hmm. yeah there's that piece of it too People use these terms pretty interchangeably in in non baseball contexts. Right. It's it's a sort of like jail and prison, right? Which right uh, or psychopath I mean, I, and sociopath. No one yeah. knows the difference between them. right yeah we there are differences. Yeah, so right this this satisfies the technically correct, which is the best kind of correct condition right. of of yes. the pedantry segment, and I support. Saying, uh, I mean, maybe what if we if we switched it from home run robbery to like long ball larceny or something just to, no. to get the same sort of flow? No. But you don't I mean, get the
1: same sort of flow because... Not
0: entirely, no.
1: You know, the only people who use long ball with any regularity <laughs> are desperate writers and editors <laughs> who want to say anything other than home run again. Yeah. So... You know,
0: fly larceny. Yeah. No, I (laughs) I guess home run robbery is pretty cemented in the lexicon. And and I do enjoy saying it. But Jamie has a point here. So we have let him air his grievance. Yeah. And that's, I think, what our our most valuable service is to the the pedants who write in here.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, I think that most people, rather than expecting to to affect real change or wanting to vent the spleen, as it were,
0: Right. Yeah. When I complain about zombie runner, I do Wait, <laughs> expect no, to affect real change. You're
1: engaged in a political campaign. Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. Importantly yeah. different, you
0: know. Yeah. All right. A uh, couple little service journalism type questions here. So Brian asked us a finance question, but a baseball finance question. He said... When calculating the competitive balance tax, and I I think as we speak, it's the day when teams have to pony up for their competitive balance taxes from the previous season. Brian says, when calculating the CBT, the average annual value used to be a straight division of the guaranteed contract value divided by the years. But now we're seeing reports that various contracts, including Rafael Devers's extension, have the AAV lowered by deferred money. Alex Speer reported that the CBT number for Devers' 10-year $313.5 million extension, if you want to call it that, is just over $29 million. So that's a little bit different from what you get when you divide 313.5 by 10. I asked Alex about this. I just went straight to the source because uh, Alex Speer, he knows a lot of things about baseball. And he told me that, and you might know this as a, as a CBA reader, but <laughs> he said that, The average annual value has always accounted for more than just the size of the guarantee and the number of years. Deferrals have always been a factor, lowering the net present value of deals, thus resulting in a lower AAV. Deferrals peg Mookie Betts' deal as having an AAV of less than $25 million per season. Chris Sale is driven down from $29 million to about $25.6 million. Option structures, likewise, have long factored into average annual values the language surrounding the calculation of AAVs in every CBA since 2007 to 11, when I first really started digging in on this shit for reasons that I still don't (laughs) fully understand. Has been incredibly Uh, dense and complex. Yes. Reporters and the public just hadn't paid as much attention to the nuances as they do now. Yeah.
1: Correct. I think that as per usual, as expected, Alex is right. He Mm -hmm. very often is. Yes. I think that most fans, to the extent that they had a sense of team payroll at all, historically have been concerned with real, quote unquote, real payroll not CBT payroll, right? And so they have they have mostly cared about that stuff. They hadn't cared mm-hmm. about the luxury tax payroll because it was less central to our understanding of the likelihood of any given team signing a free agent or keeping a player they might be considering non-tendering or anything like that mm-hmm. than it is now. And now it's quite central. You know, I long... I long for the days, Ben, when we could know a great deal less about the luxury tax situation of a, of a given club uh, mm-hmm. and have it be so intrinsic to our understanding of just like how likely a team is to play or not play in the free agent space, for instance.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: it is clearly driving the decision-making in a great many of the league's front offices. So right. we have to know these things, Ben. Mm-hmm. We got to yes, know do. these things. And then you're sitting there and you're like, you got these, you got all kinds of stuff besides salaries and even benefits that can go into determining that number. Right. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. all kinds of fun, fun little this is and that's. So, yep.
0: Here's another, the more you know kind of question from. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Sam, Patreon supporter, who says, I'm a lifelong Guardians fan and often find myself at odds with some of the consensus sentiments the fan base shares. I constantly see fans defending ownership as well as bad game calling by Terry Francona on the grounds that their regular season winning percentage has been good in the Mm -hmm. Francona era. After years of listening to this podcast, I've been able to take off my fan goggles and view baseball through a macro lens instead. And I think the regular season winning percentage argument is complete BS. Mm. Well, I would say, I mean, the Guardians, uh, they have been more successful than one would think based on what they've spent, right? Yeah. At least uh, very recently, they've done quite a good job of developing players and, and winning trades, etc., and being competitive perennially one way or another, if not uh, necessarily one of the best teams in baseball in most years. Sam continues, the AL Central has been one of the worst divisions in pro sports for most of Francona's tenure. I believe a lot of their success, both in terms of playoff appearances and overall winning percentage, is bloated by being lucky enough to be in that division. Okay. There's some validity to that, I suppose. I mean, I guess teams maybe tailor their effort level to their surroundings to some extent. So if you're in the AL East, then, you know, you got to pony up to compete with the big dogs. If you're in the AL Central, you might have less incentive to. Continuing With the every-team-plays-every-team schedule rolling out this season, though, is it possible to determine which teams, compared to their 2022 schedule, will see the biggest increase and also decrease in difficulty? I wish I could answer this myself, but I'm a data dummy. Well, you can, I think, and in fact, Mike Petriello has. Today, as we discuss this, he has uh, saved us the trouble of trying to figure this out. So... Dan Semborski, he took an initial look at this back in August using the 2022 schedule and just saying if we had had the more even schedule that year, then what difference would that have made to certain teams? Mike is looking at the more balanced 2023 schedule and is saying what's the difference in terms of uh, playoff odds or just strength of schedule, I suppose comparing the 2023 balanced schedule to a hypothetical 2023 unbalanced schedule that we might have had, if not for this change. And the results uh, sort of surprised me, I think, because I, as, uh, as Sam was, I was sort of anticipating that this would hurt the central teams, right? Because uh, we've we've said as much or suggested right. as much, right? Because, you know, central teams, they will have to play tougher opponents, one would think, or they would have had to. And Mike concludes, I mean, first of all, it's not that huge a difference in terms of the expected strength of schedule or, you know, projected uh, winning percentage of, of your opponents collectively. It's not that huge a factor, but... To the extent that it is a factor, he found that in the American League, it will benefit the entire AL East and the entire AL West. Okay, He found that it won't actually matter much for the AL Central. So it it will help the other divisions. Mm. It won't necessarily hurt the Central. I guess in the sense that for seeding and that sort of thing, it it might hurt them if it's benefiting the other divisions, but, but not that division. But he concluded it'll hurt no one meaningfully. He wrote, by this method, all 10 teams in the East and West will benefit to the tune of between 15 and 30 points of opponent strength of schedule. So the way to read that is like this. The Orioles would have had a 517 projected opponent schedule strength, the hardest in the game. Now they'll have a 490 projected opponent strength of schedule, the ninth easiest. So that's a boost of 27 points for them. He writes, it makes all the sense in the world that the AL East teams would be pleased because it's baseball's toughest division and now they get to play less of one another. So the Blue Jays, for instance, get to slice off 24 games against the East. They were going to have to play four against Atlanta either way and would have already been scheduled against the NL West. But now those 24 games that would have been against the Beast of the East now come against the weak NL Central and the four remaining NL East teams, two of which aren't much good anyway. It's the same in the AL West, which currently has four teams projected 500 or better. But... For the relatively weak AL Central, it doesn't seem like it'll matter so much. That's because these five teams had already been scheduled to face the NL East in 2023, so those games aren't new, and instead they'll pick up games against the equally weak NL Central and the NL West, which features a somewhat depleted compared to previous year's Dodgers squad and the very poorly projected Rockies. So he says we project these five teams with almost no change at all. So it was already hard to see a central team winning a wild card given the strength in the East and the West. And yeah. I guess this exacerbates that, but it's it's maybe not as dramatic as one would have thought. Now in the National League, he says it'll help no one meaningfully. <laughs> it won't matter much for the NL Central or the NL West. It'll hurt perhaps the NL East. So the NL East benefits in a similar way to the AL East. If you take the Mets, for instance, they would have played 66 games against the NL Central and West. Now they're playing 64, so there's not much difference there. Same for the four games against their previously scheduled interleague opponent, the Yankees. But instead of playing 76 games in their own division, it's now only 52. And that's something of a wash because while they do get to avoid the strong Braves and Phillies more, they also lose the benefit of playing the weaker Marlins and Nationals as much. So... Those missing 26 games have to go somewhere, Mike continues. A dozen of them come against the AL East. 15 more come against the AL West. That sounds harder. In the Central, almost identical to the AL Central. Not a strong division. They were already going to play the AL West in 2023. So the trade is uh, in division games for more games against the AL East, which is a bad thing. And the AL Central, which is a good thing. And that's almost a wash, too. And then the difference is the NL West, which doesn't benefit as much as the AL West might. That's in part because it was already scheduled to face the difficult AL East this year. And so 24 of the in-division games will be against the AL East, which is a bad thing, and the AL Central, which is a good thing. And that kind of comes out in the wash, too. So... He notes that it might help the wildcard contenders in the Central and West in the NL, who were staring at a Mets-Braves-Phillies trio and wondering if two of the three wildcard spots would already be spoken for. The road out of the East just got slightly harder. So that's what it boils down to, just using projected team strength. So I like... The balanced schedule, just yeah. conceptually, yes. and and fairness wise, and and even handedness wise, it's more balanced at least. So I think that's progress. But in terms of uh, swaying the results, it may or may not, by any great extent.
1: And if you want more Guardians content, check out our very long prospect list.
0: Ooh, yeah, I'm on plug. live
1: at FanGraphs today. Oh boy, there's some good good <laughs> baseball players in that system, Ben. Good players.
0: Yes. Although maybe not as many as uh, the Orioles system, uh, because some sites have put out their their top 101s. And man, there are are a lot of Orioles on those lists. (laughs) Like eight, nine Orioles. I mean, I'm sure that'll be the case when Eric puts out his uh, top 137 or whatever it ends up being. (laughs) Are you making fun
1: of us for going too long on this stuff? How dare you?
0: But, but you're people after my own heart. Yeah, I'm known to, to go too long nature. on things as well.
1: Well, <laughs> the thing that happened is, you know, BA put out that study about how many guys in a system end up being relevant at some point. And I was like, oh, we're never getting shorter than this now.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but but the Orioles, uh, they've got, I think BA said it's the, the first time that they've had number one prospects in consecutive years from the same draft class in oh, the Orioles case. What a
1: fun little, what a fun... Yeah. Wow, what a fun yeah. little thing to say.
0: Yeah, so it's uh, right. I mean, number one prospects in in back-to-back years mm. and and they have uh I forget what it is, 8 or, or 9 Guys on the the top 100, I think it's eight on the BP top 101. I, yeah, it's actually both lists uh, have eight right. in the top 100 or or top 101. It's you know they haven't really made any moves <laughs> of great significance this off season, but no. at least you know they have a lot of really good prospects, and they and do. a lot of them are are quite close to the majors. So yeah, Nathan Ruiz of the Baltimore Sun. He tweeted and, and wrote that the Orioles are the first organization to have one draft class produce consecutive number one overall prospects in the 33-year history of Baseball America's preseason rankings, and they have eight in the top 100, and seven of them have reached triple A. So yeah, eh, it seems like a pretty positive sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Zeke asks, if a team composed entirely of normal talent-level baseball-playing 15-year-olds could field as many players on defense at a time as needed. (laughs) What would the minimum number be that could hold an MLB team to a number of runs that is not (laughs) eye-popping? How many more fielders for a team of ten-year-olds? How oh many more gosh. for a team of five-year-olds? So this is this is basically like the home run derby scenario. Yeah, I was gonna when say when you just have a bunch of kids, kids on the field the shagging flies and yeah. colliding with each other. So like if yeah, you could just sometimes really they do run into
1: each other, don't they?
0: Yeah, it's sort of scary, but. Mm. If you could just uh, pile a bunch of 15-year-olds onto the field or 10-year-olds or five-year-olds. The thing is, below a certain age level, I don't think you're actually helping right. when you put yeah. more players on the field. You might yeah, be you're... hurting, right? Because right. they're just going to run into each other and they're not going to know whose ball it is. Right. There's a certain age also at which like, the talent level is just the capacity to field cleanly and right. throw and record an out. Yes. Like, you could have as many five-year-olds as you want. Yeah. None of them is going to throw out MLP player, right? right? I, like, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so it just it wouldn't help there's no no, no quantity no. I don't think of of five year olds like you could have a five year old on every square inch of the field, and they still probably would not make the catch and they would fumble the ball and then they would run into each other and even if they fielded it, they would not be able to make the throw unless they happened to be standing on the base basically so I just I, now when you're fifteen.
1: You know, there are
0: some pretty competent 15-year-olds right. out there. <laughs> so, yeah, there,
1: there are guys who are, you know, they're not far from being drafted depending on, right? you know, when they engage in that process. So the place you'd really see the problem, I think, even at that stage would be on the pitching side. It yeah. It's like, forget the fielding part. Like, you're just, you're probably, even when you're doing your very best, like, Approximating a batting practice fastball, probably for right. a lot of for a lot of them, not for everybody, right? Not for the guys who might end up getting drafted. But if you just were to pick a representative, you know, yeah,
0: yeah. The question said right. normal talent level, right? So, if you have the the best uh, prospect, pitching prospect in the country who can throw ninety something, right? Then, then that's maybe. maybe a little bit different. Yeah, but.
1: then maybe. But otherwise, I think you're looking at a lot of true to outcomes situations where you're just walking everyone and then giving up a bunch of bombs, right so so
0: so a 15 year old again it's an average talent level baseball right. playing 15 year old but right. but a 15 year old can can make a catch on a routine sure. fly oh, yeah. at least yeah, right yeah. so so and if you had probably
1: zip the ball across the infield with with reasonable accuracy i don't know yeah, if it'd come if... with as much <laughs> oof, right yeah, it might not come it's... with the requisite right. force but i think you'd You'd be able to to do something, whether it would be in there, you know, I don't know, but- Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I kind of I mean a uh, a grounder to like third or short with a major league player running even if it's not a particularly fast one and the arm strength of an average 15 year old and the the fielding mechanics I, I still don't know how often you would actually be able to throw someone out. I I would accept never as the answer potentially, but right. if you were able to blanket the outfield with 15 year olds and like space them out enough that they don't run into each other but but enough also that eight ball is always within range of someone, then I think you would catch a lot of, Balls like if if you had I don't know like a, a an eight or or ten player outfield or something like that and everyone can kind of catch a routine fly at least and almost every play would be routine if you had enough outfielders because no one would have to go that far to make the catch if they actually coordinated which they wouldn't probably but and we're just talking about holding an MLB team to a number of runs that is not eye popping <sighs> hmm. yeah I'm gonna say. You need to double the number of fielders at least, and there's a point of diminishing returns, and then there's a, a point of you're actively harming yourself and backfiring right. by by putting more fielders on the field. So I don't know exactly where the sweet spot is, and I think you could at least keep balls in the infield if you're stationing someone at, at the infield holes, right, so that... Even if they don't have great range, they can at least maybe knock the ball down most of the time. And even if it gets through the first line of defense, like you could have intermediate, you know, not infielders, not outfielders, but like pitchers helper types and then like shortstop helpers, you know. So like if someone does an Olay and it just goes through their legs or something, then maybe the next guy gets it. So you could probably do a pretty good job of, of minimizing hits to the outfield, I would think.
1: Yeah. I think that that's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to score any runs. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no. oh, oh, God, no. Oh, oh God, but, no. <laughs> but this is just about suppressing right. the, the big leaguers' runs. So, right. yeah. And then there's the the pressure and the intimidation. That's going to be a factor here, too. Just the anxiety of uh, going up against big leaguers. These players have not been through the, the crucible of right. clutchness at lower levels. So, yeah, I'd say if you could, if you could double the number of fielders and probably just, yeah, just like stagger them, just like kind of uh, so that one is behind the other. They're not necessarily getting in each other's way, but it's just kind of a contingency plan. It's like layers of redundancy. If it gets past one guy, then you can minimize the damage. right Thing is, they might just hit so many home runs that you'd be out of luck there. Because no matter how many fielders you have, if you hit it over the fence, you're sort of screwed. Yeah. So that's that's going to be a problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ben, I'm here to tell you, it would all be a problem.
0: Yeah. Oh, definitely.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Maybe they could like stack themselves up Mm -hmm. on each other's shoulders and like they could grab home runs. Oh wait. Or commit well, larceny
0: well, mm. commit, yeah, the other problem is that there's there's no verb form of larceny, right? Like you can't right. larcen, yeah, you can't larcen you can, uh, rob. You see, can Rob see that's
1: that, and the the sound, the mouth feel, I think that's mm-hmm. why that's a yeah. compelling argument, so
0: yeah, David Patreon supporter, says, I'm always so floored at the number of arbitration cases that come down to less than a one million dollar difference. The Angels just got Hunter Renfro a really nice pickup, and they're going to trash him at an ARB hearing over $650,000. 26 of the 33 cases have differences of less than a million. 19 are at or under half a million. Shaking my head, just needed to rant to someone. So I would say, first of all, some of these cases will probably still settle before they actually go to hearings, right? I mean, they're violent trial-type teams so that if you don't come to an agreement, they are really just they are going to hold the hearing. But there are some that get settled sort of at, at the last minute as uh, they find some common ground and compromise and decide not to trash the player and have the player have to sit through that and, and hear that yeah. and wage war financially over a relatively small amount of money. I think... Part of it, though, is just about holding the line in a way in the sense that it's almost like you have to to draw a line because if you always compromised, if there was any kind of difference, if you are always just like, oh, what's uh, a million between friends or between team and outfielder or whatever, then you might encourage players to raise the number that they file at because right. they would feel like, well, what's the harm? I will file with a, a higher number and uh if I don't get it, then you know, maybe the, the team will just give me that, right? Or because, you know, you you have to I think factor in sort of the the value of, of keeping the precedence just because right. over one case it doesn't make that much of a difference. But over many cases and many teams it could cumulatively make a a fairly big difference over a period of years. So I guess there's something to be said for just kind of anchoring the number by, by keeping it somewhat low and then not just saying okay well uh, we will we'll give you that right because it's close enough right like right. then you might kind of you know give players a little more rope and leeway and and then the numbers would edge higher i guess that might be one way that teams would think about it it's also you know it's it's not a lot of money in terms of player payroll It's a lot in terms of like other team expenses, uh, you know, other non players that are on the payroll and administrative costs and uh, paying for various vendors and technology and operating academies and such. So I guess on that sort of scale, it's not an insignificant amount of money. And I guess maybe it comes down to is it worth it like is it worthwhile whatever amount of labor we're going to spend or if we're outsourcing the arb prep to to someone like are we going to spend less on this than than we would win if we were to win a hearing and then there's sort of the unquantifiable cost of does this damage our relationship with the player or does it demoralize the player to have us be sort of slagging them off and <laughs> deriding them as a player and suggesting that they should get less money while they're listening to us make those arguments and it's been suggested sometimes that maybe a player would hold a grudge and be less likely to say sign a long term extension if they've been through that process and it sort of soured the relationship and there's a bit of bad blood. I have looked for that at times and I couldn't really find a strong signal to suggest that there is something to that a lot of times if you see content And then it's all sort of water under the bridge by the time the player is a free agent or or is uh, ready to sign an extension. And you can just kind of make up and accept that it's a business and this is just how it's done. But it's kind of along the lines of uh, it's weird to be a baseball player. And it's got to be weird to sit in a room and, and have the team tell an arbitrator that you don't deserve this amount of money. I guess people in regular jobs might go through something similar to that if they have performance reviews themselves. So sure. it's not as far as some aspects of the profession, but still got to be unpleasant.
1: Yeah. I imagine the rationale is is what you're saying where it's like even guys who, you know, we have heard instances of players being quite displeased with the the case that was sort of presented against them getting what they thought was a reasonable salary. But I think that it doesn't seem to end up having significant effects on their ability to retain those players, probably in part because every every team is approaching arbitration the same way and a lot of teams, not every team, but a lot of teams are then approaching free agency the same way, right? And so there isn't as much, you know, you kind of know, like I'm a middle reliever, here's the The band of possible outcomes for me Mm -hmm. uh, in free agency, or like I'm a, you know, first base limited thumper. So here's kind of what I can expect in the market. And there are years where that's different. This being one of them, obviously, where everyone got paid more than we expected them to except for Carlos Correa famously (laughs) but yeah it's I think that they view the knock-on effects as being either small or far enough down the road that it doesn't matter and from their perspective holding the line means that they will continue to sort of accrue benefits into the future as they set smaller precedents for future players so it kind of all stinks though Ben you know it would make me it would make me feel lousy i think oh, yeah. if i were a player i know i don't think you're suggesting the the opposite but mm-hmm. i was sort of surprised that we didn't hear more about arb being a problem last season in terms of the vibes right mm. because typically arbitration decisions are resolved like you know well before opening day you know what you're going to make well before right. opening day and last year because of the lockout those hearings were proceeding into the season yeah, and you know, I know there were individual instances of it being a problem, but I was kind of surprised that it wasn't like we didn't get a a long reported thing about how how much acrimony it was introducing in the team player relationship because it's like you don't have any months to get over that you just have to like hear the arb hearing and then go play like the next day so mm-hmm. that might feel yucky. I don't know. Yeah,
0: yeah. All right, question from Andrew, Patreon supporter. I was recently watching Rookie of the Year over the holiday weekend. Rookie of the Year turns 30 this year. In the scene where they have him try out for the Cubs, the manager is using a radar gun, and you can see that Henry Roan Gartner throws 101 and then 103. This seems odd to me. Even back in 1993, 103 miles per hour wouldn't be enough to bring a young kid into the majors, would it? 103 miles per hour is definitely the fastest pitch for that era, but I don't think it's so remarkable that you'd call up a kid, right? It's a different era, but today it's not of heard of for a high school kid to throw 100 miles per hour. We're talking about a movie where a kid fell on his arm and through devil magic suddenly could throw 100 miles per hour. Surely they could raise the velocity of his fastball to explain why they let a 12-year-old suddenly start for the Cubs. I know the premise of the movie is basically that the Cubs are trying a Bill Vex stunt in order to increase attendance, and signing a 12-year-old is a perfect stunt for that. But then he comes out and gets them to the playoffs. So my question for you is, how fast would Henry have to actually throw in order for him to be as effective as he was in 1993? What about 2022? This is assuming that the only thing that changes when he injures his arm to gain these magical powers is fastball velocity and not control or anything similar. So, I mean it would certainly get you <laughs> signed yeah. if if you were eligible to be signed at that point, if you were throwing that hard at that age and he's effective. I mean it's not like it it backfires to right. promote him to the majors. And 103 is still among the the fastest pitches thrown even now. Right. I mean, someone might get up to 104, but I mean, you're you're close to the limit at that point, even now. And 30 years ago, that would have been more extraordinary. That might have even been still when they were using the radar guns that didn't measure the ball out of the hand. It measured the ball on the way to the plate after it already had lost a little velocity. And so that would uh, suppress the average reading. So it may have been even more impressive given that. So. I think it's uh it's extraordinary enough like you might have to oh, yeah. raise it a little higher if you were to remake this movie now just given how much the average velocity has increased and <laughs> not that it would be any less incredible that a 12-year-old was throwing 103 but you know if you wanted to like have it be completely unprecedented then maybe you'd bump it up to 106 or or something like that right but mm-hmm. uh I mean, he proved that, that he deserved the spot, and yeah. it was also good publicity. So I, I don't know that I would look at that and, and think it's it's not fast enough.
1: Yeah, I, I doubt strongly that we would be like, oh this chump this child this mm-hmm. loser we wouldn't do that i mean we probably wouldn't refer to anyone that way cuz it's not nice and you know we try to like be nice a yeah. lot of the time but even our internal monologue you know the the nastier version of yourself that you then moderate for public consumption even in G-Chat, ben we yeah. wouldn't go nah loser
0: <laughs> We wouldn't say
1: that because it wouldn't wouldn't ignite that instinctive response. Like, 103 is still really hard.
0: Yeah. And that's before you get him in the system and you have the big league coaches working on him. Imagine
1: you're the Cleveland Guardians and you come across a, a high school talent and that guy is throwing 103 and you go, wow. And then Mm -hmm. you like really teach him how to pitch. And then he's a perpetual Cy young winner and he leaves after six seasons.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right. So you get him on the velocity program. Plus, this is like the first pitches he's throwing at a tryout, right? So get him in a game situation, the intensity of that. And and warming up and the practice and everything, then you know, he's probably flashing some higher numbers at that point. I would think. So uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if you could sign a a twelve year old like without running afoul of like child labor laws and who knows what else, right. uh, I mean,
1: like <laughs> I think that I I look to be clear. <laughs> I think that hopefully, what a major league organization would say is, "Hey, we know this kid's around. See ya in a couple, right? right? Like, yeah, he'll we would, be
0: the number one pick a few years down the road, right. yeah. Like,
1: uh, you know, on a watch list, probably. Mm-hmm. Like, right. if we're being realistic about stuff, but like in a hey, catch ya at the million showcases you're about to go through." <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. If this were an international prospect, yeah. you might have some under the table oh, mice? handshake deal. <laughs> yes. Yeah yeah unfortunately, that would probably be the case, but yeah. if it were Henry Rowan Gartner, I don't know anyway right. <laughs> yeah so yeah, I think you could era adjust the reading if if you were to make this today, just bump it up by a few miles per hour but but even now this would be pretty impressive and and depending on your control and and your secondary stuff, obviously like it's more than sufficient <laughs> to get by with a hundred three miles per hour now it's not uh, solely sufficient it's not all you need necessarily to be a good pitcher. But if you can throw 103 with uh, some semblance of control and and you have any sort of second pitch, then you can walk onto a big league mound right now, even if you're 12 and you'll be okay. (laughs) All right. Okay. And uh, let's see, maybe we can squeeze in one or two more here. We've been talking so much about ways in which baseball is different from other sports. Julian says... A lot of thought has been dedicated to the ways in which baseball is different from other sports and the ways in which we could change baseball to make it different from how it is. This got me wondering, what are some rules that other sports could borrow to make them less different from baseball? That is, if we decided we wanted to make baseball less unique as a sport or less unusual, what baseball rules could we add to other sports? I think most of the results would be silly, like having basketball coaches wear baggy shorts and a tank top during games, or requiring the football quarterback to clearly come to the set position on a little piece of rubber before attempting a pass. That's a balk, five-yard penalty, replay first down. Others could be a little more interesting. What if every non-scoring turnover in basketball or football counted as an out, and the game ended once X number of outs were recorded instead of being dictated by a clock? So, yeah, that would be one of the big ones if we could somehow get the clock out of things and you had, uh, I don't know, only a certain number of downs or a certain number of drives or something, right? And it wasn't about the countdown. It was uh, just about how many opportunities you had to score that would be. Very different and more like baseball, so that's one possibility. And and yeah, I mean, everyone could wear pants and belts, as we covered, right. full length pants. And and yes, you could have your coaches, your managers, uh, wear the same things that the players did, which would be absurd, of course. Just as it is absurd, <laughs> but but also just kind of quaint and endearing in baseball that that happens. Anything else uh, come to your mind as very obvious baseball things that that we could port over to other prominent sports?
1: Mm. Snacks. no. So, oh, hard. snacks. Yeah, sure. Snacks are hard to do, though.
0: Difficult. Yes.
1: I think put the football coaches in uniform, mm-hmm. basketball coaches, too. You know, do that.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, or if we uh, make the, the hoops and the baskets uh, invisible, as we were just saying. If right. it were just like you, you throw it roughly in the area and then you have the refs decide whether it would have gone in <laughs> if, if there had been an actual hoop there, then right. uh, that would be something you could do. Hmm. We talked mm. about uh, the ball not being what scores points Oh, in baseball. This, raised
1: some, this uh, inspired some controversy.
0: Yes, because some people suggested that the Roger Angel idea that in baseball, it's not the ball that scores, it is the runner and the ball can be elsewhere. That That is not really different from another thing we had discussed, which is that in baseball, the defense controls the ball and initiates the action. And so maybe these are two sides of the same coin or or two ways of expressing the same idea. I don't think they're identical, though. I think they're different enough. I think they're different enough. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, other sports are are catching up, I guess, when it comes to the, the data analysis and just how pervasive yeah. technology and sabermetrics is. They may never catch up all the way because baseball has certain inherent advantages there. But, yeah, I think the clock would be the bin. Obviously, like the variable field dimensions, which... We've talked about. I mean, if you had multiple surfaces on the basketball court or the hockey rink or the ice, it's not just ice; it's only part ice or whatever, or you know, or if it's uh, asymmetrical, right? So it's not just different dimensions, but but also just uh, weird asymmetrical dimensions of of ice or or fields or courts or whatever. That would be very baseball esque. So yeah, or or maybe less forgiving substitution systems. I mean, I'm just kind of going down the list of things that we've talked about for baseball here. But if you're removed from from a basketball game or from a football game, you can't come back in again. So I right, mean, can, yeah, uh, mm. that would be more analogous to to baseball. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't
1: know. Let's just like let the sports be themselves. You know, right?
0: No, we we want. The individuality. It's, yeah. We yeah, cherish this.
1: I, I like it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want them to be more homogenous. We've, we've lamented but, the increasing homogeneity right. of baseball in some respects. So we want to preserve the differences between the sports. I mean, it's, it's an amusing thought experiment. It's what we do here on Effectively Wild email episodes. But, uh, but yeah, I wouldn't want this to happen.
1: I have been distracted, Ben, mm-hmm. because while you were talking... Some news broke. What was that? Are you ready? I hope so. All-star second baseman Luis Arise is going to the Miami Marlins, and right-hander Pablo Lopez is headed to the Minnesota Twins, sources tell ESPN. Deal is done. Players are being informed right now. More are involved. (laughs) That's per Jeff Passan, although I will say it appears that Dan Hayes and Ken Rosenthal
0: were were first on the scoop. (laughs) All right. Huh. So I'm being informed at the same time that the players are. Well, all right. The Marlins, they finally made a trade involving a pitcher for a position player. We were wondering. Yeah when or if they would do that.
1: Yeah, the day that we ran, um, do you think that the zips that we ran for the Marlins today really pushed them over the edge? Were they like, oh.
0: <laughs> sure. Although
1: Dan said, just spend some money and keep Pablo Lopez. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's very not disrespectful a... of Dan, really, yeah, I it think is. is the main takeaway. They don't, and they should respect Dan. He's got good ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's not a, a one for one. Huh? No, we don't know some... what the rest
1: is yet. It has the twins
0: it. Are, are getting prospects, it Probably. sounds like. And and maybe also the Marlins are getting You're, a prospect too.
1: Yeah, it could be, could be guys here and there coming and coming and going. Ben.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were kind of waiting for Pablo Lopez to go somewhere, right? Because he he seemed to be one of the more tradable players that, that the Marlins had, one of the more appealing pitchers that they had with their potential surplus of pitching, and he's uh, getting up there in his beers, so he seemed like a likely candidate. I love Luis Arise. Yeah. I mean, how could you not? We were just uh, talking about homogeneity. Luis Arise is one of the antidotes to that. In that he's very much a throwback and a contact guy and just won a batting title. Now, he's not necessarily a a superstar. I mean, he was like a four-war player last year, at least according to baseball reference. It's a very nice season. He was an all-star. He won a batting title. He won a silver slugger. Yeah. He was on MVP ballots, (laughs) so it was a really good year. And he stayed healthier. You know, he's defensively limited, is the the thing about Luis Arise, right? And so technically he can play multiple positions, but not particularly well. And he played primarily first base in 2022. So I guess the Marlins, they have any number of of places where he would probably be their best player at that position. (laughs) So (laughs) it's not really a limiting factor for them, I suppose. And uh, age wise, uh, what? Lopez is, is 26 and Arise is right around there. He's uh, turning 26 in, in April. And I guess he's a little further from free agency than Pablo Lopez is. So it's, uh, you know, yeah, kind get... of a, a like for like yeah. in the sense that it's mid 20s players who have uh, established themselves in the last couple of seasons really Uh, maybe a slightly longer track record for for Lopez who debuted maybe a little bit before Arise did just a, a year before I guess but roughly the same age anyway interesting trade right
1: interesting trade kind of weird trade it's kind of a weird trade yeah
0: the the twins uh, they needed pitching though i mean it, it it's one of those uh makes sense for both sides to some extent i mean most trades are it wouldn't be done these wouldn't be consummated if they didn't make some sense for for both sides so i guess we'll have to see what the prospect packages are and everything but right. i guess i'm i'm glad that the marlins finally pulled the trigger on a trade I don't know whether it was the best return that they possibly could have gotten, but Arise is a really nice and fun player, and they just had to do something to address their roster imbalance. So it it doesn't necessarily make them that much better, I guess, in the short term, but it makes them a little less lopsided. It's progress.
1: It's progress. It's still... <sighs> it still feels like moving moving things around you know and ending up short relative to the rest of the division but i guess you have to start somewhere man you got to hope that everybody stays healthy on on that pitching staff like Dan's point was well taken in the zips which you should still read because i think it is uh it is worthwhile to think about like you know, a lot of guys with long injury histories on that Marlins staff. And, yeah. uh, you know, now there are fewer of them with mm-hmm. with innings to, to spread around. Yeah. So what are you going to do?
0: Twins rotation. Uh, that looks a lot stronger in my eyes with Pablo Lopez than without. I don't know. Though.
1: Maybe they, they might be, you know, we're going to have to reassess them. I was sort of... Not thinking about them for a lot of the offseason because they were correa And then they were Correa-full, but then I still wasn't thinking about them as much because it was like, well, okay, you had that before. Now what? Well, now we mm-hmm. have Pablo Lopez, so yeah.
0: that's something. correa came very late, but it did come ultimately. Mm. All right. We can end or, or transition with this one. Very short. I don't know whether anyone will come to your mind, but Brian says, who is the best player you instantly forgot about the second he retired? <laughs> Let me explain. I was listening to a podcast from 2019 that mentioned Nick Marcakis. I had forgotten about him and he had a great career. He was uh, famous for being forgotten about while he was still active on this podcast. We talked about him like being the the best player without Various honors, right, without uh, being an all-star, although eventually he he did get an all-star appearance in 2018 and also appeared on MVP ballots that year. So prior to that point, he was maybe the best player or making a run at being the best player without an all-star appearance or ever appearing on a, an MVP ballot. So he was kind of forgotten in his own time. But Brian says, "Who's who's our player like that? Jeff Francoeur, Alex Gordon, do mm. your jobs, keep this from happening to you." I think it, they do to a certain extent because I'm I'm always reading yeah. about baseball and looking at leaderboards, right? And and so no prominent name is ever very far right. from my mind, you know. <sighs> I mean. Forgotten about it's not like you have no memory of the person existing, I assume. Right. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I haven't thought about that guy for a while, right? right. I'm remembering a guy, right. so you'd probably have to go back further than than Nick Marcakis to, to get to that level.
1: Although, when we got this email, I was like, oh, yeah, Nick
0: Marcakis, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Maybe it's Nick Marcakis for um... us, too. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I was, I just I looked at a leaderboard just trying to look at like players in our lifetimes who kind of made me go, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. And I don't know, like... There were a few who, who kind of like probably the best player who made me think oh, I hadn't thought about him for a while is Mike Cameron, who maybe you you've probably thought about more recently as as a Mariners person. But again, perpetually underrated and in retrospect, extremely underrated, really great player. But just, eh, you know, it's not like I forgot about Mike Cameron, but I just maybe hadn't thought about him recently. Travis Fryman also stood out and is like oh yeah Travis Fryman I kind of liked him he was good Alex Gordon is not a bad one actually because I haven't really thought a whole lot about Alex Gordon lately he was very good too
1: you know who might Ben really be kind of in that group for me who's that Mike Moustakis
0: Mm, you know couldn't you see
1: I, I imagine Mike Moustakis still has designs on playing but like when he goes you know someone's gonna say like hey Mike Moustakis and I'll be like oh yeah remember when Mike Moustakis played like improbably good like infield defense here's a question are we just naming Kansas City Royals
0: (laughs) yeah maybe yeah and and Moustakis I mean he wasn't as good as as Nick Marcakis, right? I mean, he was maybe as celebrated as Nick sure. Marcakis. He was like a three-time all-star yeah. Mike Moustakis. But on a career level, he was not the player that Nick Marcakis was. Right. So maybe we, we thought more about Moustakis than we should have relative to Markakis, Markakis, Mustakis, man. <laughs> while while they were there, we probably paid a disproportionate amount of attention to right. Moustakis relative to Markakis. <laughs> but <laughs> I had to go down the leaderboard. The first name where I was really like, "Oh wow!" and and this was maybe because he played less recently, but Robbie Thompson. Robbie Thompson, I, I just like I had to be like, oh right, Robbie Thompson. Robbie I, I Thompson, just, yeah, who was you know quite a good player, and I think maybe the confusion is that you got your Bobby Thompson and your Robbie Thompson, and oh, they're oh yeah yeah you know they're both most notably Giants and almost identical career value. Robbie Thompson thirty three point eight WAR, Bobby Thompson thirty three wait. Hold on, (laughs) I'm doing a a Jeff Sullivan, wait, what moment here? They have identical wars, according to baseball reference. They're both 33.8 war, Bobby Thompson and Robbie Thompson. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You got Robert Brown Thompson, Robert Randall Thompson, identical wars and most famous for being giants. So I think. That's spooky. It is So what with their having like identical values, I mean, they were different types of players and they played at different times, but I feel like Robbie Thompson has just been sort of subsumed. You know, it's like, I think of Bobby Thompson as a giant and then Robbie Thompson's like, wait, that's a whole other guy. And, you know, he, he stopped playing in like 96 and I was still pretty young then. So I didn't get to see prime Robbie Thompson, (laughs) but, but he was a really good player too. So I think that would be the best answer for me but I took that one just because I'm gonna wrap up with a quick stat blast here and uh, Marcus and Bobby Thompson will both be relevant
1: then' tease out something interesting.
0: So I mentioned uh, earlier this week Adam Duvall signed with the Red Sox seemingly to be their primary center fielder, and it's just such a a weird career progression for Adam Duvall because he never played center field in the minors. He played center field in the majors for the first time in 2020 when he was already in his age 31 season. Yeah. That's weird, and he played one inning that year in center, and it came about because of Nick Markekis. It was the bottom of the eighth in a game on August 11th, and Nick Markekis moved from—he had pinch hit for Ender Inciarte, who was the starting center fielder, and Markekis, after pinch hitting, moved to left. And then they figured, ah, we just got, like, one inning to go. We'll move Adam Duval from left to center. And that was just the first time that Duval had ever played center professionally, I guess. And I don't think he had a ball hit to him. And then the, the following spring, April 25th, he got his first ever start in center and it was like news. It was like MLB.com. Offense first. Duvall gets first start in center field. And it was like extreme circumstances. the The lead is with three starting position players on the injured list and the lineup struggling to score runs. The Marlins may temporarily sacrifice defense for offense. Such was the case in Sunday's afternoon's 4-3 loss to the Giants at Oracle Park, where Adam Duvall started in center field for the first time in his eight-year career. So it was like, everyone's hurt, we need some hitting, whatever, let's just roll our best lineup out there and, and put Adam Duvall in center. And so he goes from never having played to one inning, then the next season he gets some starts in center. In 2022, center field was his primary position. He played more games at center field than at any other position. And everyone just accepts this now. It's Adam DeBolf. Yeah, I guess he's a center fielder. The Red Sox signed him to be a center fielder again. In somewhat unusual circumstances, uh, Trevor Story gets hurt, and maybe Kike Hernandez has to play short, and we need someone, and it's late in the offseason. And to Adam DeVals credit, he's uh, more or less held his own out there. Like it, it seems like he is capable of playing a passable center field, at least on a part-time basis. So good for him. Maybe he had this ability all along, and no one knew it. But it's really weird because center field is a young man's position. I just did a, a weighted average of the age of players at every position in 2022. And so like DH has the oldest players. Okay, that's uh, probably not a shocker, but the average age of DHs in 2022 weighted by plate appearances, 29.8. After that, first baseman, 29.1. Then catcher, 29.0. Catcher's just kind of its own sort of thing, really. Then left field, 28.3. And then uh, third base, 28.3; right field, 27.8; and then you start getting into the the more premium up the middle infield and outfield positions. Second base, 27.7; shortstop, 27.2; and center field, 26.8. So the youngest average age center fielders, like there are very few regular center fielders who are 30 and up. It's odd, and Adam Duvall has joined their ranks at a fairly advanced age, historically speaking. So I just wanted to see how weird this was or or what precedents there are for this. And Ryan Nelson, frequent stat blast consultant, find him on Twitter at RSNelson23. He was able to look this up for me. And Adam Duvall, he's the 10th oldest player ever to have their first primarily center field season. So technically it's Rich Amaral, who uh had his first primary center field season at age 38, but it was just 12 games he played. And like Sean Dunstan, he played uh, 27 games in his age 36 season. And that was his first uh primary center field. So this is like late in a career, not really regularly playing the position, but it just so happens to be their most commonly played position. There are only 2 center fielders to be older than Duval in their first primary center field seasons and play more games than Duvall did. And the first one is second on the list after Rich Amaral. And it's a big name, Craig Biggio, who had one of the wildest career progressions, defensively speaking. He did the Dalton Var show, started at catcher, then started playing some outfield. He got his first games in center young, but he didn't become a primary center fielder until his age 37 season with Houston, 2003, when he played 150 games in center because the Astros had signed Jeff kent to play second base so they asked Bichio to move out there and that was his only primary center field season because the next season he was primarily a left fielder although he continued to play some center he was five runs below average in center according to drs which is not so bad considering he played so many games and it was his first time doing that on a everyday basis so that was one example the other player who's also well known was bobby thompson not Robbie thompson but bobby thompson who in his age 34 season played center primarily for the first time and played 145 games out there. And I don't know, maybe there were extenuating circumstances. Obviously he was a a teammate of Willie Mays for a while and uh, you know, you're not going to displace him from center. And I think it was uh, the first season that Bobby Thompson was with the Cubs 1958 that's when he switched to, to center first time, and I guess they had a, a need there. So so that was weird, but that's really the only precedent, I guess, for someone who is older to do it on a regular basis than Adam Duvall, so it is quite extraordinary. By the way, Bobby Thompson does not have a P. It's just T-H-O-M-S-O-N, whereas Robbie Thompson does have a, a T, so that's one way you can tell them apart. It's also confusing, though, because there's a third Bobby Thompson who does have a P, who was uh, an outfielder very briefly, played one season for the Rangers in 1978. It's just it's very confusing. Anyway, it's if you want to tell Robbie Thompson and Bobby Thompson apart, one way you can do it. Do they have a P in their last name or not? So that was uh, one way you could look just first primary season at that position and I'll I'll link to uh to the list but really like it's rare for this to happen and uh he also looked up shortstops for me another premium position and I guess Technically, the oldest to be a primary shortstop for the first time would be Mark McLemore in his age 38 season. He played 38 games at short and played short more than any other position. Jamie Carroll, also his age 36 season, played 69 nice games at shortstop. And really, like uh, you have to go down the list, Mike Lansing played 76 games at short his age 33 season. So it's the same sort of range And just uh, before I end here, Ryan looked at it in another way, not just with age, but with experience. So for this, we divided the positions into tiers, basically according to the defensive spectrum. So as you may have noticed, when I was reading out the average ages by position, it basically followed The defensive spectrum, the old uh, Bill James idea, or maybe even predated Bill James, conceptually speaking. And, you know, you have different formulations of the defensive spectrum, and it maybe shifts a little depending on the era. But basically, we know the premium positions and the less premium positions. So we did tier one, which is center field, shortstop and catcher tier two, which is second base and third base and tier three, which is left field, right field and first base. And then tier four is D.H. And of course, catcher, you know, you don't have a lot of late career catcher conversions. Catcher is just, it's its own entity, really. You kind of lump it in with the other premium positions, but you don't have players who, who go from one to another at catcher as freely as you do at other positions. So
1: Dalton Varsho says, losers.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Although probably even that is endangered at this point. The, the only downside of him going to Toronto is he'll probably play even less catcher than Let he did. Let
1: him be weird. And Toronto let him be weird
0: yeah he didn't really even catch down the stretch with Arizona so I guess those those days were numbered anyway all right so Ryan says the most games in a career played below tier one so below one of the the center field shortstop catcher positions Before playing their first season with a game at a tier one position, is Daryl Evans, who played 1,556 games at first, third, and left before playing 13 games at short in his age 35 season. So, this is just playing any games at that position, not having it be your primary position. The most games in a career played below tier two before playing their first season with a game at a tier two or better position is Kendris Morales, who played 1,314 games at 1st, right, and DH before playing one game at 3rd in his age 35 season. The most games in a career played below Tier 3, so DH before playing their first season with a game at a Tier 3-plus position is Raul Abanez, who played four games at DH before he started in the outfield the next season. So it's pretty rare to have many games at, at DH before playing a position in the field the most games in a career played below tier one before having a season with a tier one primary position. That's a tie at 1586 with the aforementioned Mark McLemore, primarily a second baseman, third baseman, left fielder and right fielder before starting 38 games at short in his age 38 season and hall of famer, Tony Lazeri, who is primarily a second and third baseman before starting 25 games at short in his age 34 season And just to wrap up, the most games in a career played below Tier 2 before having a season with a Tier 2 primary position, John Mabry, 1,115 games primarily as a first baseman, left fielder, and right fielder before starting four of six games at third base in his age 36 season. A backup with more sample size, George Kelly, 796 games primarily as a first baseman before starting 108 games at second in his age 29 season. So that's that. That's the story. And I got great data here and multiple spreadsheets from Ryan. If you want to dig into this uh, i think the duval comp for for the most experienced player to have their first game at center ever is ray durham who played 1508 games at second and dh before playing his first game at center in his age 33 season then he never played center again mark reynolds had a single game at center in his age 34 season after 1486 games elsewhere and david justice 1423 games in right left and dh before playing three games in center in his age 34 season also, Jason Hayward had his first primary season in center in 2022 as a 32-year-old after 1594 games. Claudell Washington up there to 32 after 1488 games. So, Adam Deval, it's strange. It's uh, very it's strange. Weird, yeah. And if if he actually sticks at center with the Red Sox this season. It would be weird. And if he holds his own there, I'm happy. I mean, yeah. old dogs learning new tricks or people who had those skills all along being valued. Don't be boxed in. Don't be typecast. Yeah. Don't be defined by what you've done before. Maybe we can all play a position that we have not previously played. It's inspiring.
1: Be the Adam Duval you want to see in the world.
0: Exactly. All right, Meg had to run, so this is just Ben here to finish up. I've got to give you the pass blast and also some additional details on the Luis Araiz-Pablo Lopez trade. As we learned after our initial reaction, it is a four-player deal in which the Marlins only acquire Rise. And they send two prospects to the Twins A top infield prospect, Jose Salas And outfield prospect, Byron Churillo The latter is very young But is a ranked prospect on the Marlins team list Or was on the Marlins team list Just a projectable lottery ticket Whereas Salas was fourth in Miami's system According to Baseball America He is a shortstop for now But hasn't even turned 20 yet Still, given that I think things look a little more favorable for Minnesota I would say that on the whole The reaction has either been more positive for the Twins or not that positive for either team, frankly. I know the Marlins wanted to increase their contact rate. They struck out a lot last year and they also wanted to get more left-handed. So Arise helps them with both of those things, although he doesn't help them that much in the power department. There was some initial consternation about where Arise would play. I figured he'd probably just stick at first base where he had played primarily last year or maybe even DH because, of course, the Marlins had Jazz Chisholm and signed Gene Segura. Well, what we didn't know when we were initially reacting is that the Marlins are planning to move Chisholm to center field. So it's not just Adam Duvall doing it. Chisholm is moving to center too, obviously a lot younger and less experienced than Duvall when he made his move, but still notable for basically the franchise position player to make that move. Chisholm turns 25 in a couple of weeks, and there's always risk with any kind of position switch. I think he has the tools, he has the speed, certainly, to play center, and arguably didn't really have the arm to move back to short. So I could see it. You never really know until the guy gets out there. And then that makes room for a rise in the infield at second base, where he is passable, let's say. I don't know. It's a lot of moving parts. Both Arise and Lopez have had some injury issues. Considering the talent that they gave up, I don't know that it makes the Marlins better enough. And really, what it comes down to is that instead of trading Pablo Lopez for a pretty good position player and then moving one of the few good position players they already have, they could have, of course, just spent some money and signed someone and held on to Lopez and just acquired some position players. That was apparently not within the realm of possibility. So you can't really hold Kim Ng responsible for that if the Marlins just aren't willing to spend. But gosh, they could have gone and gotten a center fielder. There were a few on the free agent market. It's not a deep group. As we have discussed, center field is a pretty thin crew these days. Maybe that's why the Duvals and Chisholms of the world are moving out there. But there were options who could have been had just for dollars. But that is seemingly not the Marlins' way. So I sort of see what they were thinking here. I'm just not sure it gets them that much closer to contention. Arise is really fun, though. And that takes us to the Pass Blast, which is from 1958 and also from Jacob Pomeranke, Sabre's Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. And this Pass Blast will pair well with our interview on our last episode with Dan Moore about teams threatening to relocate and extracting sweetheart deals. Jacob writes, 1958, step right up and meet the Reds. Yes, in 1958, for the first time in more than 75 years, the National League did not have a team in New York City. With the Giants and Dodgers having announced their moves to California, but before they played a single game on the West Coast, one major league owner had already started using New York as leverage for public funding to help improve his own ballpark. Earl Lawson wrote about this threat in the Sporting News on January 8th, 1958. Quote, The city of Cincinnati is in grave danger of losing its National League franchise to New York. The warning comes from a man who should know, owner Powell Crosley Jr. In a statement that created an even greater furor in Cincinnati than the launching of Sputnik, Crosley revealed that he was very discouraged with the city's complacency in solving the parking problem around Crosley Field, the home of the Redlegs. And he added menacingly, A sufficient amount of discouragement on my part and bang, I'm liable to move. Ever since the Giants and Dodgers decided to cast their lot on the West Coast, rumors that the Redlegs will move into vacated New York have been rampant. These heretofore have been taken in stride by Redleg fans who hold that a city which cradled professional baseball is entitled to a lifelong membership in the major leagues. Jacob concludes, Cincinnati officials quickly passed a $2 million bond to add more parking at Crosley Field, but that was only a temporary solution. A decade later, after Crosley's death, the city built a multipurpose stadium on the riverfront downtown and the Reds moved to the aptly named Riverfront Stadium in 1970. New York remained without National League Baseball for three more years until 1962, when the expansion Mets began play at the Giants' old home, the Polo Grounds. They moved into Shea Stadium in 1964. And of course, as we covered last time, the Rosie Reds, the Reds supporters group that Phil Castellini was addressing this past weekend, arose out of fears that the Reds would move later threats in the 60s after this very explicit Crosley threat so this is a very old game it's been going on for a long time and when Castellini last year was saying that if you want to look at what you would do with this team to have it be more profitable make more money compete more in the current economic system that this game exists in it would be to pick it up and move it somewhere else be careful what you ask for in that Castellini was just following a long tradition of MLB owners in general and Reds owners specifically and a little light extortion tends to work we will not extort you to support Effectively Wild, but we sure hope you will anyway. You can go to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and sign up to help us keep the podcast going and help us stay ad-free and get yourself access to some perks. As have the following five supporters Tyler Green, Keith Teeple, Sarah, Trevor Nunez, and Hope Corain. Thanks to all of you. And the Patreon perks are many and varied. You can get access to the Effectively Wild Patreon Discord group. Come on in, the water's warm. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes. Meg and I will be recording one this weekend. And by popular demand, at least a few people asked. We are going to do an advice column episode inspired by our Dear Abby baseball letter of a recent episode. So if you don't want to miss out on that, sign up for Patreon, get the bonus pods, get the Discord group access, get playoff live streams, get discounts on merch and ad-free fangrafts memberships, and other perks and goodies. Patreon.com slash EffectivelyWild. You can also contact us via the Patreon site if you are a supporter. If not, you can still email us, send us your questions and comments at podcast@fangraff.com. At you can rate, review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at @ewpod and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r/effectivelywild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance today and this week. That will do it for this week. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week.